0: Welcome, I'm Rosa Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. The Norwegian Arctic is home to some of the most endangered and vulnerable animals in the world, including caribou, arctic foxes, polar bears, and seals, as well as the fish and plankton on which many of them feed. A recent study led by an Oxford University team of scientists shows that the area's ecosystem is now facing a new threat, high levels of toxic PFAS, also known as forever chemicals. Norwegian Arctic ice is contaminated with high levels of toxic PFAS, presenting a serious problem to the health and future of the area's wildlife and food web. When the ice melts, the study found that the chemicals can move from glaciers to ecosystems in the Arctic fjords. PFAS is a class of about 12,000 chemicals used to make hundreds of everyday products that are resistant to stains, heat, and water. We've done so many shows about this. The problem is they do not break down naturally in the environment, and that is why they are called forever chemicals. PFAS chemicals are used to make nonstick pans, waterproof fabrics, personal care products, carpets, dental floss, popcorn bags, and toilet paper. University of Florida scientists recently found PFAS in toilet paper. PFAS is in the blood of 97% of Americans, according to a report by the Centers for Disease Control. PFAS chemicals have been linked with serious health problems, including increased risk of cancer, thyroid diseases, kidney and liver problems, increased asthma risk, and decreased fertility, among other concerns. To learn more about the study and its effects on wildlife and the food web in the Norwegian Arctic, we are joined by Dr. William Hartz, the study's lead author. Dr. William Hartz is a researcher at the University of Oxford and an environmental chemist specializing in organic contaminants in snow and glaciers. Dr. Hartz joins us from the world's northern most settlement, which is in Longyearbyen Evalbard. Hi, Dr. Hartz. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's good to be on the show.
0: Well, it's great to have you. Before we dive in and talk about your study, I just want to ask you about what's happening in Europe, because the Biden administration has promised to tackle these forever chemicals. But the Environmental Working Group recently put out a paper saying that there's just too many delays. Federal agencies are failing to meet their own major milestones for tackling PFAS. Um, what is happening in Europe? How, are, how is Europe dealing with PFAS?
1: Well, like the US, it is widely distributed throughout Europe in remote areas, in industrialized areas, in populated areas. And most recently, uh, just last month, uh, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany have proposed legislation to go through the European Union to actually ban all 12,000 PFAS. Of course, industries using PFAS have something to say about this, but uh, should this legislation and be successful, it would be quite impactful on the levels of PFAS in the environments in Europe and, and globally in the long term.
0: You are joining us right now from the world's northernmost settlement, which is Longyearbyen Evalbard. Um, and you've gone on a lot of incredible, what sounds like incredible, polar expeditions. Um, before we dive in more, can you just tell us about the type of the work that you do and how long you've been doing this?
1: So I've been working on PFAS as part of my PhD in the last five years now, which is now complete. And uh, that's partly been based in the University of Oxford in the UK, but also the university centre in Svalbard in Norway. And that's uh, where I'm working from now in in the Norwegian Arctic. Um, We're at 78 degrees north. Uh, The light is just only coming back to the town now after several months of darkness in the polar nights so it's uh, very welcome to see the sun back but it's still pretty chilly um it's currently minus 17 uh wow. but it's getting down to minus 13 uh, later this week so it's uh, quite cold up here mm. but it's worth saying that you know despite this really remote location PFAS is having an impact here
0: I mean, it's incredible to think about. And before we talk about PFAS, I just wanted to ask you about some of the changes that you have seen during the course of your research. The Arctic is warming three times as fast as the global average, and this has led to the loss of sea ice, the melting of glaciers, and has really impacted the Arctic ecosystem. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, completely. So the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on the planet due to climate change and even more so, Svalbard. Svalbard is warming 1.1 1. 1 to 2.7 degrees per decade in the last few decades. So this is unprecedented. I mean, we, we talk about IPCC stuff, you know, 1.5 degrees, two degrees, trying to get things below that. You know, Svalbard has already surpassed that. And just because global warming is not evenly distributed around the planet, if that makes sense. And yeah, winter temperatures are already six, eight degrees above, what they would have been uh, historically. So yeah, Svalbard is really at the at the forefront of climate change frontline of climate change if you like.
0: What about how this is affecting glaciers? According to reports, 68% of the earth's fresh water is locked up in glaciers and ice caps. At the accelerated rate of melting we're now experiencing, scientists predict that almost half of Norway's 1600 glaciers will disappear in the next 100 years with similar predictions for the world's other glaciers. I mean, this is going to have, well, already really is having a major impact.
1: Yes, certainly. The glaciers in Svalbard are equally suffering from increased summer temperatures, which adds to increased melts. And that period of ablation means that they're losing a lot of mass in the summer. And, and certainly some of the glaciers, it's currently dark, but if I was to look out my window, some of the glaciers I can see out of the window They'll be gone in my lifetime.
0: Mm. Incredible. Well, let's talk about how you and your team conducted your research. You tweeted about this. You write that you drove several hours by snowmobile with colleagues from the University of Svalbard. You went to the highest elevation ice cap and camped for a week to drill an ice core. So talk about how you actually conducted this research.
1: Yeah, so it's really no small undertaking, It takes months of uh, preparation uh, to prepare for such a thing. And then, even in the days before we go, we have to pack sleds and get all our our equipment together, which is, yeah, really no small task. And then we drive for about five hours um, from Longyearbyen out into the, yeah, the remote Arctic environment that surrounds us here. There's no roads in or out of this place. You can only fly here. And we drive off uh, onto the highest elevation ice cap. And Then we, between bad weather and good weather, we find time to drill our ice core. And the way the the ice core is working is that snow is accumulating year on year and year on year in essentially just a big pile. And then what you can do later on is come back to that right in the top of the glacier and drill. And like the rings of a tree, then you're able to look back in time at historical deposition. It's an incredibly powerful tool to look at uh, past atmospheric processes.
0: And, and what sort of tools do you use at that point? Because after you drilled the ice core, you detected 26 different PFAS in the ice core. So how does that work?
1: So it's yeah quite, uh, quite something. So we are drilling this ice core with a special drill that re- receives, retrieves a cylinder of ice from the glacier. And then we're able to look back in time with that cylinder. And we have to very, very carefully pack it up, pack it up to avoid contamination, but also to make sure it's stored safely and then drive it back to the settlement of Longyearbyen, at which stage we then have to take further precautions to avoid contamination of our samples. And then eventually it makes its way to a special type of mass spectrometry, which allows us to measure the levels of PFAS that was originally in the ice.
0: And why did you choose this particular area?
1: That's a good question. So Lomonosophono is really one of the best ice core sites on Svalbard. It's a very well established location. Um, Svalbard itself is at a sort of really hot spot for Arctic research. There's a lot known about PFAS here in many ways compared to other places in the Arctic. But this particular aspect, understanding the atmospheric transport of PFAS to Svalbard is not well understood. So Mm -hmm. it seemed like an obvious gap in the knowledge we should fulfill. And these kinds of uh, ice core records of PFAS, there's only two existing uh, published ice core studies on this in the Arctic. So really, we're just in the third one to come along here. So and in a completely unique location. So really, whatever we was going to find was going to be uh, quite unique, I think.
0: So the transport of these PFAS chemicals are not well understood?
1: So a lot of the existing knowledge uh, is based on Snow pits and modeling work and simulations that have been done in the lab. But the actual reality in the Arctic atmosphere is not well understood. And that's what our study has attempted to address.
0: How can you even come up with an answer to that question? Like, how does this arrive in the Norwegian Arctic?
1: It is a complex process how the PFAS is transporting itself from industrialized regions up to the Arctic. Um, There are several mechanisms at play here and it depends on the type of PFAS as well, but it um, is largely dependent on sunlight to initiate um, a radical degradation process, which allows for the formation of the end products that we observe in the ice. So it's a little bit complex. Uh, I can talk more about the the sources, for example, if you're interested to know more about that. Um, but yeah, it's a quite a complex process, but once it's locked in the ice, then that's perfect because then we can come and find it for ourselves and measure it. Hmm.
0: And in the study, there was a lot of information about TFA, which I'm not familiar with. 71% of the mass of PFCAs was TFA, uh, trifluoractic acid. So since it was 71%, can you tell us more about that?
1: So TFA, trifluoroacetic acid, was one of the major PFAS that we observed, uh, often in levels 100 to 1,000 times higher than the other PFAS. It's really considerably high levels. And this is a bit of a a long story, so you have to bear with me, but I can explain to you why we observed this particular PFAS at at these high levels, and also why we observed increasing levels of this PFAS in our ice core. So that means as time goes by in our ice core, we have a story of increasing Levels of deposition. So it all it all starts with the discovery of the ozone hole back in the 80s, which then initiated the Montreal Protocol. And the Montreal Protocol was an incredibly successful piece of international legislation that banned CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons. You probably remember how is. these 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 compounds are depleting uh, the ozone layer, and that would contribute to things like cancer and things like this. And that piece of legislation has been incredibly successful in reducing the levels of CFCs in the atmosphere. And the, now the ozone hole we know is recovering, which is which is great. Unfortunately, the compounds they replaced CFCs with do have some kind of knock-on effects in terms of PFAS. There's two aspects to it. One is that the CFC replacement products, some of them have high, incredibly high global warming potentials. That is to say that they are 100 or 1,000 times worse than CO2. And then another aspect of this is that several of these replacement products are able to then degrade to the PFAS that we observe in the glacier. So this enables these these replacement products to become globally distributed in the atmosphere, at which point they can then degrade and become deposited in snow and ice in the Arctic, but also globally into our drinking water supplies, onto our farmer's fields. and, And that is a really effective mechanism of them getting them all around the world. And actually, recent amendments to the Montreal Protocol have been successful in changing the profile of compounds to remove those which have a high global warming potential. So that's good news, actually. Um, But the bad news is that several of these compounds are still um, potential um, precursors, so-called precursors, to the degradation products that we observe on the glaciers and the, the PFAS that we observe on the glaciers. So I wouldn't say that I would want to rush to change the Montreal Protocol. It's been an incredibly successful piece of legislation. But it's worth bearing in mind that actually You've got to think about the knock-on effects of using these compounds.
0: Right, and and the Guardian reports that though TFA is thought to be less toxic than many other PFAS, the chemical has not been thoroughly studied, so no one knows what damage these compounds may be doing. Today, we're speaking with Dr. William Hartz, a researcher at the University of Oxford and an environmental chemist specializing in organic contaminants and snow and glaciers. Dr. Hartz, Uh, recently led an Oxford University team of scientists showing that the Norwegian Arctic's ecosystem is facing a new threat, high levels of the toxic PFAS forever chemicals. Dr. Hartz will be with us for about 10 more minutes if you have a question for him about what He and his team uncovered, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. So I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, first off, how this is affecting polar bears who are endemic to the Arctic, And you say that as a polar bear, you have exposure to toxic man-made chemicals and stresses from a changing habitat. They have, polar bears have found, have found to have high PFAS levels in their blood up to a 35% higher concentration compared with coastal bears. So what do we know about how this is affecting polar bears?
1: So yeah, polar bears are incredibly well studied in the Arctic and PFAS is just one of the environmental stresses which they are faced with. Um, so of course, I know you've spoken a lot about PFAS on your show, but there's several other pollutants which contaminate uh, polar bears and not to mention they're faced with other environmental stresses such as a changing habitat through reduced sea ice areas. And the polar bears need the sea ice in order to hunt seals, which is their, their main food source. So the, the polar bears are if you like, being attacked by all these different angles of, uh, of environmental problems that we put on them.
0: And the same applies to the other animals in the area and the food web. I mean, we're talking about an incredible group of animals, um, the caribou, there are birds, obviously the fish, the plankton, uh, foxes, seals. So can you talk about how re- re- research is conducted to find out how these chemicals are affecting these animals and the food web?
1: So yeah, in Svalbard, about 20, 30 different Arctic animals and other species have been found to contain PFAS. This is pretty incredible distribution. And the the high levels that we observe in uh, the highest levels are observed in polar bears, in Arctic fox, and in glaucous skulls, a type of gull. And all these free animals are the apex predators at the top of the food chain. And they're exposed to these PFAS through their diet, which then accumulates in their bodies. Sorry, have you go back with your question again, I can then answer that. I uh, just want to give that little background. I'm sorry? What was your question again? I've uh, slightly trailed off there.
0: Oh no, no, that's fine. I was just wondering how the research is conducted to find out how mm. these chemicals actually affect the animals.
1: Mm. So in Svalbard, um, the polar bears are incredibly closely monitored. In fact, uh, the people from the Norwegian Polar Institute are conducting this monitoring activity um, going out every year. And some of them have collars, some of them not, and then they dart them to sedate them in the same way you might be sedated when you have a operation in a hospital. And then they take blood samples from the polar bears, and then later on the polar bear wakes up afterwards, and then they have to take this blood back to a lab to analyze. And, and in fact, the blood levels in Svalbard polar bears are not dissimilar from local residents living, living near a fluorochemical factory in batteries in China. So that kind of gives you an idea just how high these the blood levels are in polar bears. Wow. They're as high as some of the most contaminated humans on Earth.
0: Mm. Wow, this is so, so, so sad, Dr. Hartz, when you think about these incredible precious animals. I mean, they're getting hit with the climate crisis and now they're getting hit with these chemicals.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, like I say, uh, multiple environmental stresses are coming at once for polar bears.
0: And, and you have to wonder how it's going to affect their health, given what we're learning about how these chemicals affect us. To think that over what 97% of Americans have PFAS in their blood. And then there was a study conducted by Health Canada in 2016. It found PFAS chemicals in more than 90% of the nearly 2,000 cord blood samples collected from pregnant women. Um, and so when you look at the diseases that this could potentially cause to humans, increased risk of cancer, reproductive and immune system harm, um, thyroid disease, I mean, the list is pretty long.
1: Yeah, it's quite a variety of um, conditions that have been associated with high PFAS levels. And really the big one that's the most concrete evidence exists for is lower birth weights in humans
0: what concerns you in terms of how widespread this is in such a remote area, because it's also important to note, according to your study, when the ice melts, these chemicals can then move from glaciers to ecosystems
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so there's two two important points to make here. one is that this processes the atmospheric processes and the chemical diversity of pfas that we're observing in our ice core, that's reflective of processes globally. So this is not something that's unique to the Arctic, it's something that's going on globally. So that really points to how ubiquitous and how able these PFAS are to transport themselves around the world. And then going back to the melting glaciers, basically in our ice core, we see that several of these PFAS are mobile as melt percolates through the ice core. And from that, we think that this mobility of PFAS allows them during seasonal melt in the summer to enter the glacier runoff and then enter the fjord ecosystem downstream. And in the fjord ecosystem, that's where you have seals feeding on fish, living on sea ice, predicted on by polar bears. Obviously, the Arctic food web is more complex than that, but this gives you the picture of what is downstream of these glaciers.
0: And, and then you briefly mentioned this, but prior to this particular study, two other remote Arctic ice cores have been analyzed for PFAS. One is from the Devon Ice Cap in the Canadian Arctic, in which 23 PFAS were analyzed. The second is from the Mount Oxford Ice Field in the Canadian Arctic. So this is so widespread. What what can be done about this at this point?
1: Yeah, this is a, a good question. It's certainly phasing out PFAS use, finding alternative safe products is a really good start. And we know these forever chemicals and all these PFAS to be incredibly persistent. Some of these are known to be bioaccumulative and toxic and the sort of safest approach in my mind, in my opinion, is that we should be very careful about persistent man-made compounds. And in that way, I would support the legislation that's being put through the European uh, Parliament shortly. Uh, That's his plan to ban all of these uh, perfluoroalkyl substances, the the forever chemicals.
0: What has been the reaction to this study so far?
1: Well, it's been several uh, articles in uh, national newspapers in in Norway, in in Denmark, in The Guardian, planning on adding some of the results to a documentary soon. And Mm -hmm. it's really great to be chatting on the show today with you Rose as well. So yeah, there's been lots of uh, reactions and talking with other people as well. They're also quite uh, shocked by some of the results. So yeah, really highlights this uh, issue that PFAS has in the Arctic and globally.
0: Well, before we let you go, we have a question. Let's hear from Kevin in San Francisco. Hi Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Uh, I recently finished a book called Living Downstream, and the author in that talked about um, how as weather patterns move northwards, they concentrate chemical contaminants, so people who live in northern or southern latitudes suffer worse than people at the equator. And you could talk about how that works if you're aware of it. And another question I have is, have you ever had a chance to talk to chemists or scientists that develop these chemicals and how they morally justify Releasing these chemicals when they have no idea what the long term consequences would be?
0: That's a great question, Dr. Hartz.
1: Thank you for your question, Kevin. So I'll take the first one first, which was about how did these contaminants move to high latitudes in the northern and southern hemispheres? So this is often, this idea that you propose is exactly correct, but it's often concentrated on more traditional legacy contaminants, you might have heard of PCBs or, or DDT, for example. And these, compo- these compounds are incredibly volatile, which means you get this sort of distillation process whereby these compounds can move further, uh, further and further north, and each time they're condensing in the cold environment because that's what they want to do. They want to condense in a cold place. So in that way, there is a preferential northern wood transport of these legacy contaminants like the DDTs and things. With PFAS, it's not quite a simple story, but certainly there are some indications that some of these compounds are being preferentially deposited in the Arctic compared to other locations. And I can't speculate, I I can't really speculate as to why that is. I have some ideas, but it's certainly concerning this result. And this is something I really want to follow up now in my my future research to ascertain which PFAS are preferentially being transported to the Arctic and, and what process drives that. And then your second question was about... um, Have you
0: had a chance to to talk to any of the scientists or the chemists who create these chemicals?
1: No, I haven't, no. Um, It's certainly been an interesting conversation. I I don't imagine that there are sort of evil chemists somewhere dreaming up nasty compounds. Um, But I do imagine that people are... um, yeah driven to create compounds to solve a solution, and that's great, but perhaps they're not thinking about the whole of life chemistry of these compounds you know once you've used it in this application, what does that mean beyond its use? What does it mean during its use if these compounds are leaking from the system, for example, refrigerants leaking from fridges and things and And so yeah, I think there needs to be some more stringent um development of these compounds of industrial compounds in the future to ensure this doesn't happen.
0: What is next for your research?
1: So I'm moving now to work on these atmospheric monitoring programs. So around the world, signatories of the Stockholm Convention, which bans several of these industrial chemicals, schools, are obliged to undertake monitoring activities in the atmosphere to measure the level of these compounds. And this includes PFAS and PCBs. And these long-term monitoring studies have been measuring the air in the same way that CO2 has been measured in the air for decades. And that's a really valuable data set and allows us to understand what existing legislation has been successful in reducing levels and actually what existing regulation hasn't been successful. So, yeah, very real world impact that these monitoring studies can have.
0: Dr. William Hartz is a researcher at the University of Oxford and an environmental chemist specializing in organic contaminants in snow and glaciers. Dr. Hartz led a study that found high levels of forever chemicals in Norwegian Arctic ice. Dr. Hartz, thank you for your work and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you. And you can find more information about this study and other new information about PFAS at yourcallradio.org. Coming up after a break on our One Planet series, we'll talk about an executive order by California Governor Gavin Newsom. Environmentalists and tribal leaders say it will harm salmon and smelt, whereas farmers say that the governor is tipping the balance in their direction. We'll be back after this.